with that, I want to bring up uh, Cindy Wu up to the stage. Let's give her a huge hand. Uh, in a way, Cindy needs no introduction. Um, but I do see a lot of new faces today, so I think an introduction would be fitting. So good thing I asked you for this bio. All right. So uh, Cindy is a, a frequent speaker on this platform, and we love it when you get to share with us from your experiences, from the word, your wisdom. And you always bring a snappy, snappy attitude when you speak, so I love it. All right. So uh, <laughs> uh, I guess the newest thing for Cindy is this past year she started working as the program manager for Houston Welcome Refugees which uh, sounds like it's been an awesome, awesome thing for you. Uh, Houston Welcome Refugees is a nonprofit whose mission is to ease the burden of resettlement by mobilizing volunteers to welcome refugees with compassion, hope, and honor. So uh, really excited that you got that role and are doing that. Cindy holds a master's degree in religion with a focus on world missions and global Christianity from Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. Uh, she is the author of two books, one on global Christianity and one on the global refugee crisis. Uh, she also happens to be the wife of Pastor David over there and the mother of three kids over there. Uh, and her favorite area of service at Access is with the youth. Go youth! All right, so um, Cindy, so glad that you are willing to speak with us today and for us to learn from you. So let's give her another warm welcome, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It is so good to be with you this morning, and um, I am grateful for this opportunity to share with you about some things that the Lord has been teaching me lately. Looks good to you. Okay, so let's start off by looking at the images that you see on the screen, okay? What theme or word do these images symbolize to you? Peace, Okay. So the word peace in kind of common modern-day usage creeps into my vocabulary, usually something like, can I get some peace and quiet? When I ask for peace and quiet, I just, I'm saying it's too noisy, I just want quiet. I will tell my kids to try to keep the peace. That just means don't fight, okay? Avoidance, keep peace. If they have conflict, I will tell them to make peace with one another. Making peace with one another involves forgiveness, confession, okay? So that's making peace with someone. And then there's peace out. I don't say peace out, so I Googled it, and you have to pump your chest twice and then do this. And you can pump your chest twice, kiss your fist, and then do this too. But that's the proper way that you say peace out, and that just means goodbye. <laughs> so in kind of modern um, language, that's how peace comes out a lot, or that I hear, or that I say. But all of these meanings are too shallow for what the word peace really means. The biblical word for peace is shalom, and Pastor John preached on shalom a couple of weeks ago. But the word shalom has a lot more to do with being quiet or avoiding conflict. The word shalom is not merely the absence of conflict hatred, strife, war. The word shalom includes wholeness, completeness, fullness, and abundance. Seeking shalom 
is really at the heart of Christian ministry. And by the word ministry, I don't mean a professional job. I don't mean that seeking shalom is the ministry of those who are paid and called by the church to do ministry, okay? The ministry of every person who follows Jesus, your vocation is to seek shalom because God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 is really one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And in it we read, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, himself, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this ministry of reconciliation that you see in verse 18 is something that the Lord gave to every single one of us who follow Jesus and take his word seriously. Shalom. This concept of peace is something that we should be seeking as followers of Christ because it's the very essence of our salvation. I'm going to go back. Um, recently, I have had the chance to think a little more about peacemaking. A lot of the um, current events in the world today, such as border security, um, global conflict, have this question of how do you make peace between people who are very different from each other, from sides who have opposing motivations and interests. Um, how do you make the peace? How do you seek the peace of your city? There's been a massive divide in national dialogue over peacemaking topics. And um, for me and my work with Houston Welcomes Refugees, um, we interact with people who have been in the midst of conflict, people who weren't able to make peace with their neighbors and were forced to flee from their homes. So this question of peacemaking has been just really prominent in my thoughts recently. And last month, I had a tremendous privilege of going on a border immersion trip with some leaders from our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And you can see from the photo that we're a really diverse group of people. Many of these are conference superintendents, heads of ministries, pastors, um, executive board members, people who are wanting to go as learners to understand what is happening at the border. And the group that I went with is called the Global Immersion Project. And this is a nonprofit that leads global immersion trips to San Diego, Tijuana, as well as to Israel, Palestine. They also offer um, peacemaking workshops. And this is the group that took us on this trip. 
Prior to going on the trip, we had a pretty extensive pre-trip learning component, which involved listening to podcasts, watching videos, reading books, doing some exercises. And so I went with the Global Immersion Project, and this is my little souvenir from the trip, my little t-shirt that says Everyday Peacemakers. And um, this trip was really eye-opening for me and really helped me to put a framework around how to think about peacemaking. I'm going to be upfront and tell you that the framework that I'm sharing with you today comes from this book. It's called Mending the Divides, and it was written by John Huckins and Jer Swigert, and they're the people who co-founded the Global Immersion Project. I highly recommend this book to you. If, you. if anything that you hear today resonates with you, please check out the book Mending the Divides. So the peacemaking framework that I want to talk to you today has four parts. The first is see. Seeing is going beyond noticing. A lot of times you notice things, but how often do you really see? You notice people around you, but how often do you really look at them carefully, pay attention to the little details in their physical aspect, um, try to really understand what makes that person the way that they are. I think that in our really busy society, we do a lot of noticing, but it's hard to take the time to actually see. I have um, a personal story of learning to see. So this book in my hand is called Blood Brothers, and it was written by Elias Shakur. He is a Palestinian, he, he identifies himself as a Palestinian Arab Christian Israeli. And if that sounds confusing to you, it's because his life story is very rich. Elias Shakur today is a peacemaker. And I read this book 10 years ago when I was in seminary. And this was the book that literally changed the trajectory of my life. Because prior to reading this book, I had grown up as a kid of the 80s and the 90s with one understanding of who a Palestinian was. I didn't know that there were Palestinian Christians. I thought they were all Muslims. And the reason why I didn't know that is because I did zero research on Palestinians, never took the time to learn about Palestinians. And this book tells the story of Elias Shakur's family, they're Palestinian Christians, living in the area that was forcibly um, divided when Israel became a, a nation. Okay, this is the mandatory um, partition of Palestine, and their family was forced from their home um, by what was the Zionist movement wanting to establish Israel as a formal nation. And it just tells the story of dis displacement, of injustice, and then how he went to theological studies um, and eventually became a peacemaker in the region, and his ministry continues today. He's been doing it for like four decades now. But what really struck me about reading this book was I began to see Palestinians in a very different light. I had to confront my very narrow view of an entire people group. At the time that I read the book, I didn't have any particular animosity towards Palestinians, but I was very fearful of them because growing up as a child in the 80s and 90s, there was one image on television of a Palestinian. And if you are somewhat close to my age, you might remember Yasser Arafat. He had a turban, and there was an organization called the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and they were always in the news about their terrorist activities. 
And so that, in my mind, defined all Palestinians as an entire people group. And so as I'm reading this book, God really taught me to see Palestinians in a different light. And this truly was the book that got me interested in refugees, which brings me to my work um, trying to advocate for and mobilize volunteers to care for refugees today. So yet another book that I would highly recommend. So the first step um, to peacemaking is learning to see. The second is immerse. To immerse means to physically go into a space, to go and accompany people who are being oppressed or who are suffering and trying to imagine what it's like to be that person. To immerse yourself means that you go in as a learner. You have to temporarily suspend your opinions and turn off any instinct that you have to solve their problem. To immerse means that you go in and you walk alongside people. You offer a ministry of presence, of being in their space, and learning from them. Not so that you can tell them what to do or rescue them or be their little messiah, but so that you can be a learner. Jesus, in his incarnation, was our ultimate example of immersion. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God Almighty did not remain aloof. He immersed himself in a physical body, in physical space and time and place. And through Jesus, he immersed himself with humankind. I also was reflecting on the fact that the immersion process um, is time-consuming. So Jesus waited 30 years before he began his ministry. Jesus maybe could have, when he was 18, you know, busted out and been like, surprise, I am the light of the world, everybody. I mean, you know, back then, people didn't live that long. So 30 is actually pretty old. 30 would be like a 50-year-old guy. It'd be like Pastor Ted just all of a sudden being like, guess what, everybody? Guess who I am? But he waited until the right moment. Sorry, you're not 50, I know. You're like 48, right? Very young-looking 48-year-old. Okay, so immerse. The next step in the peacemaking process is to contend. And this is my favorite part. This is where you get into action. This is where you fight and you advocate and you work and you get your feet dirty and you get to do stuff. So when you contend, you start to get involved and you speak and you use your voice and your power to fight for justice. But here's the caveat. Too many people want to jump into contend before they take the time to see and immerse. Before we went on the border immersion trip, we were expected to do all of this pre-trip component, and it was very lengthy. It was six weeks long. We had conference calls and all this stuff, and I thought, boy, I don't have time for this. But the more that I invested my time in trying to learn and to read, the more I understood why they asked us to do it. And one of the re things that I learned when I went on the border trip was that 
if you don't take the time to see and immerse before you jump into contend mode, you actually put a burden on the people that you're trying to help. If you go to the border and you don't know anything, and you go and you just start asking a bunch of questions. So when was this wall built? And tell me, you know, what's your story? So like what, their people are being deported? You put such a burden on the people that you're trying to help that they have to explain their story to you. And you could have Googled it. You could have read a book. You could have asked someone before you went on a trip. And this was really eye-opening to me because um, in my work mobilizing volunteers to help refugees, I really struggle to find that balance between needing warm bodies to fill the slots for welcome team and move-in team members to asking them to educate themselves, asking them to be prepared and knowledgeable and educated so that when they go interact with refugees, they don't offend. And there's that tension, right, of wanting to get people like one foot in the door and don't ask too much versus like equipping them properly so they can do the right thing. And I was really convicted that I think the seeing and the immersion step is super important. If you care and you want to advocate, you must educate yourself before you go so that you do not offend, so that you do not put a burden on someone else to try to do all that educating job for you. If you look at Matthew 25, um, this for me really encapsulates the idea of contending. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. So this is contending. The fourth step in peacemaking is restore. And this goes back to the idea of being ministers of reconciliation. Um, I like this definition that the global immersion people put forth for peace, um, peacemaking. They say, I'm sorry, for, for restoring. They say, peacemaking is the mission of God and the vocation of his people. Okay? So if we are to be ministers of reconciliation, peacemaking is part of the mission of God and it is the vocation of his people. That is what we're called to do and all of that points to restoration because that is what God wants to do in our broken world is he wants to restore broken relationships, broken systems, broken people. And so this fourth step of um, peacemaking comes more easily. People are more willing to listen to us if we've done the previous steps of seeing, immersing, and contending. So these are the um, really basic framework, which was very helpful to me as I thought about how do I go about in my life becoming a peacemaker. And the idea is not to become an Elias Shakur. The idea is to become an everyday peacemaker. Every day in finding those little things that you can do literally every day to work towards peace, but also every day meaning common. Okay, an everyday peacemaker, not some glorious, you know, famous celebrity peacemaker, but how can you be just an ordinary peacemaker in your life? I'm going to share about my trip now to um, the border and through this offer some reflections um, that hopefully will just kind of stir you towards thinking about how you can pursue peacemaking in your everyday life. So this was approximately five weeks ago. We went to the San Diego-Tijuana border. And um, we went to learn about immigration, to learn about um, local peacemaking, and to hear from the people who were contending on both sides of the border. People like Alejandra, she's wearing the hat. She lives in Tijuana, 
and then John Huckins in the blue shirt. He lives in San Diego. Alejandra is Mexican, John Huckins is American. They live on opposite sides of the border and they cross it very frequently in order to partner together to teach people about peacemaking. So here we are at the very beginning of our trip, standing right along the border. There's actually, behind John, there's a little pedestrian path that you can just walk over to the United States. So we're on the Mexican side right now. And our, we as a group went as representatives of the Evangelical Covenant Church. This was a pilot program that we were testing out to see whether this could be a future offering for our churches. So in the future, I mean, you guys can definitely sign up through the Global Immersion Project on your own, but this might be something that our denomination offers as kind of um, a program that we want to encourage churches to undertake. So we went in our ability to be bridge builders. And this is a photo of a bridge in Tijuana where underneath migrants used to camp there. And you can see it's really clean, but people used to kind of hang out there and as they were trying to wait to cross the border or waiting to see their asylum um, cases. And it was becoming such an eyesore that the story is that they went in and they cleaned up all the migrants, put them on buses, drove them to the desert, and then dropped them off. Yes. This is the border wall, um, portion of the border wall. So um, the border between Texas and Mexico is 1,954 miles, and 700 miles of that has fencing. Um, the places that don't have fencing is because there are natural boundaries, such as rivers and really rough terrain that you can't really cross safely anyways. But this is a portion of the border wall right in San Diego. And if you notice, there's that brown wall, and behind it, there's a silver wall. And so there are places along the border where you have double and even triple layers of border wall protection so that if someone is able to scale one wall, by the time they run and try to scale the other wall, they can catch them in between. These areas are very heavily monitored by videos and um, by bar border patrol agents who um, drive and monitor the area. One of the first things that we did when we were there is we went to this, um, this section of the wall, which is in a spot called the Binational Park. Um, you see a little, the, the dove and the painting and that little monument, it says, Eres mi otro yo, which is you are my other I or me. And this comes from a Mayan saying, um, and it was a poem that was, it was used in a poem, um, just kind of really um, encapsulating the relationship that these communities have along the border. Okay, you are my other me, because you have families that are separated by the border, you have a culture that's very, very similar that's also separated by the border. And so this is just um, part of the park, which you can see is decorated very beautifully. There's murals everywhere, a lot of tourists. It was really um, striking to me how they turned the wall, which is a symbol really of oppression for many people, a symbol for freedom, I do want to be clear to point out for some, um, but definitely a divider between people groups and how on the Mexican side they were able to make it quite pretty. You can see all the tourists down there. Very bustling area. This is the portion of the wall that extends out to sea. And so that's the Pacific Ocean. And 
I don't know if you can tell from the picture, but the wall doesn't go out that far to the sea. So people were like, well, why can't you just swim around it? Well, you could, but they have these little electronic, electric like buzzers or tasers underneath the water. So if you get in the water, you're going to be like, Bleh. so you can't really swim around the wall. And even if you could reach the other side, like I said, there's border patrol agents on the other side. So you would get picked up pretty quickly. So no one even tries to swim. But you see people, Mexicans that are um, picnicking right up against the wall. This um, is a pinky kiss mural, okay? So look at my hands. This is a pinky kiss like this. And this mural symbolizes the only point of touch that you have between the wall. And this is because, let me, um, okay. I'm just gonna jump to this slide to show you that previously the walls, can you see these two little slats here? The, some portions of the wall have this where you can actually like extend your entire arm and like touch someone on the other side. But because people were slipping um, false papers and drugs through the slats, so they put a second barrier behind it and it's this metal mesh to where you can only stick your pinky. And it's so tight that in some places you can't even stick your pinky. Um, and I have a pretty small hand and there were some places where I could not get my finger through. So that's what the pinky mural represents is just this touch. And this door um, is built into the wall, and they used to open up this door periodically um, on special occasions for people to picnic um, on either side for like a couple of hours. Um, since the migrant caravan of about six months ago, this door has been sealed, um, well locked, and not opened, um, and not permitting people to have physical touch with each other. Um, this picture, again, shows the distance between the slats, but it also shows you that on the American side of this binational park, it's completely empty. There weren't anyone picnicking or swimming over there. Um, you see a little vehicle in the back. That's a Border Patrol vehicle. And it just really struck me how vibrant and lively the Mexican side was of this park, and the American side was completely empty. I took a picture of this little ribbon that was tied. Um, and I just, I don't know, I was really struck by it because I thought, you know, what does this ribbon represent? What is the story behind this little piece of cloth? Was it a rendezvous point for couples? Was it someone tying that ribbon to remember a special day that they had been able to go to the wall and talk to someone? So I just can't even imagine all of the stories that um, have taken place along the wall. After we visited the wall, we went to a coffee shop and listened to a group of moms. This was a very difficult conversation. So the women in pink, they are a group of um, dreamers moms. So um, these women were all deported. They all have children in the United States. Um, some of these moms have not seen their children or had contact with them for over a decade. These are moms who, for whatever reason, went to the United States um, without legal documentation. So their kids um, are called dreamers. And then at some point, they were deported. And some of the cases, um, the woman on the right, um, I do want you to know that I do have permission to post these pictures. The woman on the right, um, her husband reported her to immigration. Just a lot of couples do this to each other to get back at one another, just if they're having marital issues. Um, and then he took her children and fled to Canada, so she has not had contact with them for a while. And then the mom on the left, who leads the group, her name is Yolanda, 
and she um, she was kidnapped and assaulted. And when she reported it to the police, they realized that she was undocumented, so they deported her. And at the time that that occurred, she did not realize that there was a particular visa that she could have applied for, which would have kept her in the States because they have visas for trafficking victims and also visas for people who report crimes. Because when you report a crime, you make your community safer, but she didn't know about the existence of the visa, and so she didn't apply for it, and then she was subsequently deported. Um, she left behind two children, and the eldest was a 13-year-old daughter, and I have a 13-year-old daughter. And she, she told us that um, her daughter didn't speak to her for one year after she was deported because her daughter thought that she left. She thought mom had just like fled the country and left them to live on their own. But they've made peace, but um, yeah, they're just trying to help other moms that are in the same situation, try to figure out legal pathways to be reunited with their children. So this was just a very, very difficult conversation. At the same time, we met Jose, and he is a deported veteran. He went from Mexico to the United States when he was 13 years old, so he was a child at the time of his deportation, um, of his move to um, the United States. He served in the U.S. Army for six years, served in the reserves for three. When he was about 70 years old, he was arrested for a false weapons possession charge. It was later thrown out, but by the time the amount of time that it took to adjudicate his case was so lengthy. He was in jail for over one year. And there is a law that if you're in jail for more than 365 days, it's automatic deportation. So even though he was found innocent, he was deported at 72 years old to Mexico, where he doesn't have any family. He is not, I don't know, I don't know how good his Spanish is, but, you know, he's a vet who served with the military who was deported at age 70. And so he was sleeping on the streets and tried to go to the jail to get a place to sleep for four days. And then he met the deported moms group and they took him in and now they're caring for him. So that's his story. Um, that evening, we went to Casa del Migrante and this is a migrant home. This is one of the best of all of the migrant homes in Tijuana, of which there are 38. And these are homes where people who are trying to um, seek asylum in the United States or they've been recently deported, they can stay and get a meal and a roof over their heads. That night, it was really special. We got to share a table with, um, it, it was all men at this particular home, but we got to share a meal um, with the migrants and listen to their stories. And then later that night, we slept here. And so we also got to share a roof with them. And this particular home can hold I think 150, it has 150 beds, but they have mattresses and they can lay out 50 more mattresses to host 200 people. And it was pretty crowded that day that we were there. Um, the next morning when we woke up, it was Father's Day. And, you know, I felt sad because I wasn't with David, I wasn't with my dad, and I didn't really have internet, so I didn't get a chance to text them ahead of time to wish them happy Father's Day. And a lot of the dads were missing their kids like the dads in our group, but then someone just thought, you know, how many of these dads are separated from their kids? How many of these dads haven't seen their kids for years, maybe decades even? So that was just a really poignant moment to be able to wake up with hundreds of men wondering just kind of what was their story and how badly must they be missing some of their kids. 
I will say that there were kids who were here with their fathers, and I talked to a couple of them, and I said, you know, what do you do in the day? And they're like, nothing. I'm so bored. I just sit here and do, you know, I play bingo all day long. Um, so it's just, it's hard. And some of the younger boys would go and, like, wash cars and stuff with their dads out in the streets. After um, we woke up, we drove out and went back to the border. So here we're still on the Mexican side of the border, and I have this arrow, and it's pointed to this shadowy figure. Well, this is a Methodist pastor on the U.S. side. So this is border church. You see the cross and a table with a Bible and communion elements. Well, we did church on Sunday morning at the border. And what they do is you have this pastor um, the, the man in black is a Catholic pastor on the Mexican side. On the U.S. side, you see him a little bit behind the cross, his little shadow. That's the U.S. pastor. And they read scriptures together. They um, pray together. And then the guy with the T-shirt, he represents a group of activists who advocate for deported veterans. And so we had this really brief, really touching service together um, across the border. And while we were having church, you notice on the right that there's people who are sitting there and trying to talk to their family members. Um, on the American side, so the Mexican side is completely open. Anyone can approach the wall. But on the American side, they limit interaction on Saturday and Sunday. There's, two, there's a two-hour window where you can come and have a, minute, a maximum of 10 minutes to talk to someone on the other side. So we're having church on one side, and they're having a conversation on the other side. And this was a really horrible kind of thing to have to witness. Um, lots of tears um, on this special day. So this is just a close-up of the people who are meeting. Um, this is the names of some of the deported veterans that they wrote on the slats of the wall. And then we took communion. And this was the moment where they asked us to pass the peace. And we don't really do that here at Access, but a lot of church traditions ask you to ask the pe pass the peace. Sometimes it's a handshake, sometimes it's a kiss or a hug. But here you just do the little pinky hug. And that's representative of um, just the limitations that people have to truly pass the peace at the border. And yeah, that's, that's like when I broke down. Um, so... After that really special um, border church experience, we had to cross the border back into the United States. And the border crossing on a Sunday, because they've done this trip many times, typically takes three hours. And I was like dreading. I was like, three hours, this is terrible. I mean, I just really, and we only had to traverse about a mile. And I was like, oh, three hours to cross a mile. So this is 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Well, this is 9 p.m. in the evening. We're still not crossing the border yet. So, yeah, it took us seven and a half hours to go one mile. We moved so slowly that we were able to make multiple group trips to Costco and buy pizza and go to the bathroom and go shopping. I mean, it was just that slow, y'all. Uh, we just got out of the car. We did karaoke with people in the streets. We went, yeah, souvenir shopping, um, just walked up and down, bought food off of vendors, but it was horrible. And part of it was it was Father's Day, but this is the reality for so many people. They do this on a daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly um, rhythm to try to be connected with their families or try to work. We met a woman in the car next to us. We were talking to her, and she said that um, the traffic was so bad because of Father's Day, but um, that she does this every single year. She drives to Mexico to see her dad on Father's Day. 
So for all the complaining that I was doing, and <clears throat> I got really dehydrated too because I didn't want to have to use the restroom while we were trying to cross the border, and so I was just not too happy by 9 o'clock. But um, yeah, it was just really humbling to realize that this is what many people have to do all the time. Okay, so this is our final morning in San Diego, and here we're talking to Border Patrol agents and Border Angels. The Border Patrol are the people who enforce the um, laws of our country and catch people who are trying to enter illegally, and the Border Angels is a humanitarian organization that provides relief for migrants. And obviously they're on opposite sides of the issue, but it was really interesting for me to hear their different perspectives, watch them engage in this very respectfully. And the thing that really stood out to me was the Border Patrol agents take so much pride in their work and they try to do their job with a lot of integrity. And for them, it's really hurtful, all the criticism that they get in the news and from their own relatives and friends who say, um, the guy on the right, which you can't see clearly, he's Hispanic and his family members say, you're a traitor. You know, how can you do this to your own people? And it just really opened my eyes to, you know, many times when there's different sides of things, there's different perspectives, there's different interests, and um, yeah, they just both sides feel like what they're doing is the right thing and that they're doing it with integrity. So that was just, a, that was a gift to us for them to take their time out to um, really let us grill them, both sides. And it was interesting to me to kind of see the border angels sometimes say really harsh and direct things to the border patrol people like, you know, well, they're corrupt. And I was like, oh, gosh, please don't start, you know, don't argue with each other. But they were super duper gracious about it. After this conversation, we visited um, a detention center. And this is um, a privately owned detention center in San Diego. It's very large. And... Um, we weren't able to take our own pictures, so these are pictures that I got off the internet. But this is um, a detention center that can house up to 1,500 beds. It is privately owned by a private prison company, so you can tell it kind of has like this feel of a prison. Most of the people in the detention center are non-criminal detainees. They're, this is considered civil detention site. Um, the vast majority of them are just waiting for their immigration hearings. And this detention center is kind of unique in that they actually have courts um, on site. And um, these are mostly misdemeanor cases waiting for trial. So we got to look at some of the spaces that they, um, where they hold prisoners and they, you know, kind of separate them according to the level um, of kind of what they're being, you know, held for. And saw, you know, like, um, the chapel and the library where they can actually access, you know, legal help and um, get assistance for their cases. So that was, again, very interesting. Um, okay. So that was the end of my trip, and I went home feeling kind of heavy-hearted because of all the lives that were kind of in limbo, but also really grateful for an opportunity to maybe, you know, bring this message of seeing, immersing, contending, and restoring as you go and try to make peace in your own context. Um, you know, God himself set this example for us. He saw our plight. He immersed himself in human form into our world. He contended with sin, and he restored us to himself. 
And this process of peacemaking is one that I feel that as a follower of Jesus, it's really a privilege to be able to walk through this process in our society with people. Um, But you can't do it unless you yourself are restoring yourself because broken people can't fix broken things. How many of you have ever heard of kintsugi? Okay, this is a Japanese art form. And I love this um, as a metaphor of restoration. So kintsugi is an art form that tries to give new life to broken things. The Japanese um, take a lot of value in not wasting. So when you have a broken bowl, rather than just chunk it to the trash, you try to make it more beautiful than before. So they use a sealant to put together the broken pieces, and then they use gold to make the broken pieces beautiful. Kintsugi tries to see beauty in brokenness. It tries to restore something to its original life, but the result is even more beautiful than what you began with. And this is a metaphor for peacemaking, trying to mend together broken things so that the end result is more beautiful than what you started with. So now, in the final moments that we have, I would like to give some space for us to talk about peacemaking and about kintsugi. Okay? Um, Just turn to a couple of people next to you, and this is what I want you to do, okay? I want you to share about one local injustice or global conflict that you feel some level of concern about. Or you can identify a social issue or place of brokenness where you recognize that you need to see the other side more clearly. And then what is one concrete step that you can take to doing a better job of engaging and learning? In my own life, there are a couple of issues that I'm really wrestling through right now, um, theological issues, um, society issues that I'm having to read books of people that I don't agree with. I'm having to look at news outlets that I cannot stand. And it's uncomfortable. It makes me uneasy. Sometimes it just makes me mad. But I really think that it's important that we press into this type of exercise, okay? Just try to kind of embrace the um, discomfort that you might feel in having to listen to someone or read something that you don't agree with. And then finally, can you think of an example of an interpersonal conflict that you were able to restore? Okay, so go ahead and turn to two or three people around you. Don't make your, your groups too big so everyone has time to share. And then just go through these questions.